Coming up next, the bookening reads Henry IV, Part 1 and Part 2. Everybody, welcome to the booking. This is Nathan Alverson, your humble and obedient hoist. Didn't like the way I said that at all, and it wasn't intentional. I don't know why it came out like that. You hoist, hoist us up to higher planes. Hoist. It's kind of like a New Zealand. We're uh, we're on a tight schedule today. I do hoist us up to higher planes. You hoist us up where we belong. I hoist us up where we belong, <laughs> where eagles fly. Yeah. And Brandon, all you need is love. All yeah. yeah. <laughs> that is a really cool scene in that movie. I will say, Brandon, you don't. You didn't know that we were making a movie pool? No. Mm, I don't know that we should say it out loud. Nope. It's Ewan McGregor. It's Ewan McGregor. The great great musical theater star that is Ewan McGregor. (laughs) I I know the movie now. Brennan, you're Brennan, the scholar who's baller of reading. I am. You're on a tight schedule today. You're going to Washington, D.C. as soon as this recording ends. I am. Got a meeting with the president. And I've got a meeting with the president. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Going to secure some funding for the book name. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So we can make Jake walk around that. Public funding, baby. Yeah. Yeah, a little public funding for the booking. Hey, if it works for PBS, we're better than PBS, right? Yeah, we are better than PBS. Yeah, the Public Broadcasting Society. What are yeah, they? What's the S stand for? Service? Pub service, probably. It's not the Public, public Broadcasting broadcast. Society. Sounds like a com- public broadcasting service. Sounds system. like a very <laughs> alphabet soup from the nineteen right. 30s, yeah. 40s, or 50s, or whenever it was created. Like the you know the National Broadcasting Company or the Columbus yeah. Broadcasting, whatever. Yeah. yeah, you're Jake. You're the pastor who's a master of reading. Indeed. And we are. We might even have to do donor shoutouts without Brandon. That's how tight schedule we're on. Brandon's oh, like going to run out of here. Secure us millions of dollars. So he's going to walk yeah. down a hallway, West Wing style. People will be handing him folders and stuff like that. And <laughs> They'll all be looking forward while chatting at each other, w- bantering wittily. His beautiful female assistant will say insociant things to him, and he'll say while being half a step behind. While him. being yeah. just half a step behind him, they'll have some banter, and then he'll go down a different hallway, talk to a different person. Yeah. And other uh, people will come in and out of office doors. I'll burst into the Oval Office and I'll say, hello, Mr. President. <laughs> I've got your swan song here. <laughs> and then the credits will roll yeah. as Brandon is drug out into the street <laughs> shot and shot by Secret Service. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and that is my highly topical uh, West Wing riff. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Aaron Sorkin's always topical. You know, it's hard for me and the wife to find things that we both like to watch, but we both really like to watch the West Wing. Huh. That's it's just, funny. It's just corny enough for her and it's just smart enough for me. I loved that show as a kid. It's a good show. Where can you watch it? Oh, boy. We're on a tight schedule, and this is what we're spending (laughs) our time on. Guys, let's talk about Henry the Fifth. Nope. Fourth. Henry the Fourth. Well. Well, Well, we are going to talk about Henry the Fifth, but. This is Henry the Fourth, part one and two today. Yes. Let's talk about them. What what planet are these based on, Brandon? uh, What planet? I think they are based on. Mars. Mars. These are definitely Martian. Yeah, they have that liquid mercury running through their veins and all that jazz. But speaking of pop entertainment, I think we've said before that all modern entertainment somehow owes something to Shakespeare, Mm -hmm. especially the first one where you have Falstaff and his Mm -hmm. goons. That's like the Guardians of the Galaxy. And then you have the other serious timelines happening over here with the father. Mm -hmm. And they all kind of merge at that major battle at the end when the one guy gets to prove himself, the two howls fight for the future of, or the two Henrys. And Chris 
Pratt gets emasculated entirely. Yeah. He would have... Uh, four um, spinoffs, but that is what they're doing. Yeah, Shakespeare would totally have four spinoffs. Yeah, the Mary Wives of Windsor is a false staff. Well, and Shakespeare even has like a, a kind of cheeky, like, you know, he has like the post credits, there's more coming, you know, the guy. In the Yeah, and then like Marvel does sometimes completely disappoints because false stuff doesn't really appear at all in the fifth. Henry's. No, don't we? Yeah. We actually just get like a note, like, "Hey, by the way, Falstaff died." Yeah. <laughs> so. Hey, by the way, the Guardians of the Galaxy ship got blown up. <laughs> <Yeah>. Oh well, <laughs> really sad. But yeah. So it was. I point this out with my students when we read Romeo and Juliet. At the end, you have Friar Lawrence and Romeo and all these characters running towards this final scene, which is a graveyard. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, Rowling couldn't do it better. Right. Nobody could build this tension as well. Shakespeare already knew what made for good tense theater. Right. And so a lot of people get this idea that Shakespeare would never play with you, be theatrical or like plot oh was goodness. plot was beyond him. No. You know, oh people, my goodness. Shakespeare's one of the great it showmen. Sounds like people who've never read Shakespeare. Yeah, but I play. think that people get that impression, like Shakespeare's the black tie society. Like so you're going to go there tonight, and you're going to watch, yeah. and it's going to be very, un- it's not going to be fun to watch, but it's Shakespeare. But that's not Shakespeare at all. He's fun to watch. Everything is tense and building towards these climaxes, and he knows how to pay off. And he's not above being like, well, here's where the sword fight needs to go in. Really yeah, like, think- here's an action scene, you know? Yeah, Marvel's a much better comparison to Shakespeare than, what did Scorsese say, the MCU is not cinema? A theme park ride, I think is what he said. Oh, well, then I guess this was a theme park ride. Well, yeah, so is Shakespeare. That's the thing is, I know what Scorsese means, but he's just denying that good storytelling, including his storytelling, has a theme park element. It crests, it dips, it... Sure. Marvel movies don't have profound soliloquies, but really, if we're talking just about plot and entertainment value and outrageousness, you know, it actually strikes including me. body humor and yeah. character payoff too. Body humor, it's it's all over. Well, the second one, it's all about body and bodily humor. Right? <laughs> well, and the fact that Shakespeare ditches plot elements that aren't working and forgets things from one play to another. <laughs> very Marvel. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like, oh, Tony Stark just needs to learn the same lesson because that works for this play. Forget that's, continuity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, Falstaff's more of a jerk in this one, you know. Well, like, yeah, well, and yeah. some of that's just, I mean, even like old school movies had that same mentality of the, the idea that these things were going to live in these incarnations in per- perpetuity and people are going to be able to continue to access them. Right. That wasn't how anybody approached yeah. these stories. That's not how Shakespeare approached these. He approached, okay, all that stuff is dead and gone. People have fond memories, maybe, but they're not going to piece together and try to hold, like, what we need is for this play to work and to be entertaining. And right. the characters in this play to work and be entertaining. Even early movies, certainly early plays, these things were designed as single-serving entertainments. If somebody's writing a TV show now, they're thinking about the fact that somebody's going to watch it more than once. Somebody's going to look for all the details. They're, they're going to look... go back. They're going to screenshot it. They're going right. to if... break it down on their websites and in their podcasts. If our characters go to a coffee shop, what's the name of the coffee shop? How does that tie into the larger themes of where we're... How many Easter eggs can we pack in for the ultra nerds? Like, even if we're going to do a Joker movie, like, What's the what's the street name like? What's right. the name of this character? It's going to be a hat tip to the creator of Batman. The the old serial movies aren't thinking that way. They're assuming you hardly remember, and you're going to keep track from one. Like, and that is the virtue of of Marvel. They keep a real continuity, but also one of the smartest things they do is they just say, eh. Okay, the larger continuity is fine, and we can pull that together in you know our team up films. But this one solo film has to work as a standalone film. It's the strength and the weakness because yeah. it, it does create 
problems and it does mean that characters learn the same lessons twice or learn one lesson here and then the next time repudiate learn to repudiate that lesson without those two things ever yeah i mean you know does thor need a hammer or doesn't he like like you could how many times does tony stark need to prove that he's willing to take one for the team (laughs) apparently every every single time (laughs) (laughs) oh boy but that there's i just came up with my hot take on captain america he is a reverse prince henry that's that's my that's my snobby Shakespearean hot take. Number f- that's that's one. that's his arc is I'm a guy that takes responsibility for people and wears the majesty of the role as cap as Captain America that's been given to me. And the lesson I need to learn is that I should be a little bit more like Falstaff. Go live for myself. You know, just live for myself. That's interesting. Yeah, I think you're right. So Scorsese said that, huh? Yep. Yep. Not cinema. You almost wonder if Marvel put him up to it because then you've got this like whole round Samuel. Samuel L. Jackson responds. Robert Downey Jr. responds. Yeah, well, which, by the way, Sorskazy, like, let let the 74-year-old genius have his dumb opinion. We don't need to respond to this stuff. Who cares what Martin Scorsese says? He's allowed to, he's earned the right to sit on the porch on his in his rocker and wave his cane. Nobody needs to be indignant about this. Some well, of the some of the responses were fine. James, James Gunn's response. James Bond was, Gunn was very gracious. Was, yeah. And with some of the other ones, you have to imagine like some reporter stuck a mic in Oh sure, yeah. Right? Like it, Well then my then my rebuke is for the reporter. Like, exactly. Like what what else is Robert Dunny all Robert Dunny Jr. said was it's not cinema. Well, it's in theaters, isn't it? I thought that was what cinema was. Okay. It's a work of narrative <laughs> entertainment designed to spend some... It's on film. It's us... on screen. Well, speaking of works of narrative entertainment, let's talk about the work of narrative entertainment known as Henry the Fourth, Part 1 and Part 2. What did you guys think? We we should say we watched, in case people aren't tracking, we watched the... Holocrown. Holocrown version yes. with good old Tom Hiddleston playing Loki Hal. Loki himself. Loki himself. Yep. There's the, there's the tie-in. As Falstaff some guy as henry the fourth you got your jeremy irons mm-hmm. decent actor yeah he's well yep decent actor kind of an annoying voice though screechy yeah. don't care for it you were right not a good continuation of the Bolenbroke from the first movie didn't really seem like that would be who he becomes no but let's actually start there because this is actually part of the marvelization of shakespeare i mean he's he's not a good continuation of henry from richard but neither is the character as as as, as, as written what he needs to be yeah. is i mean this is just a new henry mm-hmm. right and jeremy irons is pretty perfect for it really yeah, as much as I said I would have liked that guy, the more I sort of looked at the play, I thought, you know, it's nice that they made a break because... You need him to be the contrast that Hal is going to... Well, and also, as much as we talked last time about that particular portrayal and Shakespeare's portrayal of Bolingbroke in Richard II, making it ambiguous as to how much he wanted the throne and yeah. what his what exactly his machinations to even get the throne were, in this play, he's very regretful. Yeah, because it opens up that way he wants to go on a crusade but he keeps getting stopped and the crusade the point of it is to make amends and show repentance for what happened with richard which we still it's still ambiguous whether he actually ordered richard's death or just kind of said it'd be nice if richard died and some Mm -hmm. people killed him you know kind of but he seems to feel guilt for it and he's he's racked by it and he has the famous soliloquy about not being able to sleep heavy lies the head that wears the crown and he, where he was a man of action in Richard II, he does feel much more contemplative and um, and you wonder guilt wrecked. So this happens a lot with Shakespeare's kings. King Lear 
was supposedly a man of action when he was younger, Mm -hmm. but he's just a guy wrecked by insanity at the end of his life. And so how much of that is just Shakespeare's portrayal of what age does to someone and to also to kings i think it's all it's his portrayal of what age does i'd also submit because to it or go ahead with falstaff at the opening of falstaff's decayed body is supposed to be mimicked with henry's right henry the fourth's dying body in the second part too mm-hmm. and so it's supposed to be a, a humorous foil of that but they both right. falstaff doesn't die but Spoiler alerts, Henry does. Right, <laughs> spoiler alert. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think I think Shakespeare is fascinated by that. I think he's also just fascinated by kings in particular, mm-hmm. yeah. contemplating the fact that I have all this divine authority poured into me, and yet I'm still a man. I mean, he loves that contrast. He'll get it anywhere he can. Just, I'm a king, and yet the anthropomorphized goddess sleep won't do what I want her to do. Well, yeah, it's the, it's a, it's the fascinating way that Brit has always thought about their kings, yeah, or at least with Elizabeth. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I was thinking about yeah. Elizabeth. I was thinking about even just like any modern portrayal of Elizabeth or of uh, Victoria is going to focus in on that exact tension and reality. You know, Netflix is the crown or... Yeah. yeah, like what was it actually like and what were the human foibles that they still had to put up with? Yeah, because yeah what's it going to do? What does it do to their marriage that she's the queen and has this... She is the crown, but also right. she's the wife. She's a symbol and she, yeah, 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 yeah. It's an interesting thing that obviously fascinated Shakespeare. And certainly if he's, if his job here is to entertain the masses and flatter the current crown, or at least entertain the current crown, he's wanting to portray some sympathy and say, hey, I understand to the crown. And he's also wanting to say, you know, to the, play with the tension the masses also feel of. This is yeah. a person. This is a god. This is a king. This is a. This is something more. This is something less. A lot of things that I read too point out that Shakespeare is trying to nod towards Elizabeth's house being a resolution of the War of the Roses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so he's pointing out with the Henrys that anybody based in potential treachery to another king, any anyone that has their authority that way, it can't. You can't have stability. Even the king can't have stability mm-hmm. until there's some sort of Righteous real, foundation. Real righteous resolution to it. Yeah. Right. And so the, the things will be uneasy all the way through the War of the Roses plays until finally you get, oh, Henry VIII is a little strange. <laughs> yeah. That's a weird one. Well, Henry IV tells, he basically tells Hal at one point, the smart thing to do is to take the wars outside of England. There's never any question that there's, there's going to, not going to be wars. Yeah. But he says, if you, can do, if you can do foreign wars, then I don't remember how he says this exactly, but the the basic point is you're not going to get away without galvanizing your people towards war. Just take it off home turf and that'll probably help. And it helps remember that Elizabeth was famous for she really solidified that idea as the king's or the queen in that case, the body politic versus mm-hmm. her actual body mm-hmm. when she like put the white paint on her face and came out at that. Yeah. And she was like, here I am as a representation, a symbol almost of England. Right. And that's how I'm, I'm the virgin queen. I'll spend the rest of my life this way. Right. And uh, for him, that must be a fascinating thing to play with. And you can see it all over his plays. Well, heavy lies the head that wears the crown. Yeah, exactly. I that's mean, that's the line I was thinking of. That's the line. And that's. And here with Prince Hal, his big concern is you have the weird twist where he's actually with Falstaff because he wants to be more fallen so that when the time comes, it'll like get him that much more credit. Yeah, let's talk about that. What What is the deal with that? Because he, he does give that speech where he says, yeah. I'm doing this on purpose. Yeah. I know that I shouldn't be hanging out with these guys, but actually it's all a ploy 
are we supposed to accept that that is Hal's motivation? Are we supposed to are we supposed to think that Hal is in fact cynically using these ruffians, or does Hal actually enjoy hanging out with the Guardians of the Galaxy? I think we're supposed to believe him, but I I think that it, part of what works about it is that you don't have to believe it. Right. I think the fun of it as just a straightforward play is Shakespeare loves, loves to have these characters that like have their aside to the audience that's, you know, and gets the audience in on his joke and it gets the audience processing double meaning to the actions that are happening on stage. Like, right. and he knows that that's fun for the audience to do. So I think that he very much just wants that to be a straightforward way of looking at it. But even if that's the case, I think it can be read and felt the other way too. Like, come yeah. on, like what young man, you know, gives himself to debauchery for noble ends, no matter what he tells himself, <laughs> right. right? Like yeah. all kinds of young men give themselves to debauchery and tell themselves that they have noble ends in mind. I just got to sow my wild oats so that I, that way I won't be, ten, you know, if I sleep with 10 women now, then I won't be tempted to run around on my wife. Well, I kept thinking of an uncle of mine had one son and he was just very upfront about telling him that's what he needed to do. Like, you're going to go to college, kid. He would just say, go to parties, get drunk, meet women. I mean, he'd be about that explicit about mm -hmm. it. And my uncle was a very successful computer programmer, lots of money, big house. I think he wanted the same for his son. That is the American education. Yeah. That is what college is for people. For the middle class, it is no different than uh, what what do you call it? What do the Amish call it? Oh, the sp spring, the... Uh, what is that? Yeah. Uh, Kleinen Springen or something like Klingen that? Kleinen Springen. Something like that. Yeah. It, whatever it is. Yeah. If that's Kleinen Springen. It's something. It's, 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 that is what people think. And that uh, boys will be boys. You have to sell your wild oats. Room Springer. What'd you say? Room Springer. There you go. American Christians send their kids off to college knowing and expecting this is just how it has to be. Mm -hmm. These things will happen. Go run, play at college for four years, figure it out yourself. And then you'll get it out of your system and you'll want to settle down and start a normal family just like we did. We did that. You did that. It'll be good for you. I mean, it's a little scary, but, you know, it's better than the alternative, which is to take your life seriously and get married and start a family before you know what you like and what you want. And Well, and you also have this surplus of energy and animation and it needs to be channeled Yeah, it somewhere. needs an outlet. You need an outlet. It's mm -hmm. catharsis. And, yeah. but, that, but that outlet really can't and shouldn't be marriage because no. you're not ready for that and that's going to end in tragedy and you don't even know what you want. And if you do that, then you're not going to be set up to, you know, really succeed and have the money and the career that you want. So... You know, we make allowances for you to have these outlets and this time and space to have right. these outlets so that you can set yourself up for financial and career success so that you can have the kind of family that you want, which is the clean, upper middle class, middle class family with a picket fence and one and a half kids and a, yeah. and a puppy. And neither of you spend the rest of your life tormented about the other's past that they had for like four years. Nope. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even give any thought to that. Well, as far as whether or not you're supposed to take it seriously, mm. I do think Shakespeare plays with, plays with that because it's what we saw with Bolingbroke too. In the Richard II, you don't know whether or not he's behind the scenes making everything happen right. or if he's just kind of caught up in it and allowing it to happen because that's so when he executes the two friends, mm -hmm. right? 
And you find yourself in situations like that where you're kind of going along with it, but you also feel like you're just taking advantage of the situation that you're in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And also you're kind of help. You also just feel like, I don't know what to do. And yep. then you, we all feel those moments where you're just pushed along with some wickedness or whatever's going on. And you're just like, okay, I have an, I have a life experience that makes me sympathetic to Prince Hal here and thinking, yeah, at one point I'm like, yeah, I'm using this for my career. This is great. But then also at the other, you're like, no, this is just my weakness and I have no clue how to get out of this. Yeah. 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 I think we all have experiences yeah. like that. I think. I mean, I want to say I have a chunk of probably years in my life that's just like I find myself among these people. And so even though I know better, I'm going to make myself one of them. And you try to justify it to yourself. Yeah. And you do. Yeah. yeah. And so, if you're a Christian, you come up with the most convoluted, like, I'm, I'm going, going to be a, witness. be a witness to them. Yeah. It's like guys who go, I'm going to sympathize with the. You know, with with real so Jesus ain't mm. with prostitutes. And and unless I've actually, you know, had sex and smoked pot, and how am I going to? I mean, literally, it's that dumb. Yeah, it is that, that you dumb. tell yourself it is that dumb, and it can be pretty pathetic too. Like the inevitable Christian articles that will be written defending why they went and enjoy to see and enjoyed the Joker mm-hmm. because it helps them understand this psychosis. the fallenness of humanity, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, because yeah. it's you know the homeless guy who's yelling in the back of the bathroom at the library now i can finally get him right <laughs> or you could just if you really wanted to get him you could go talk to him and offer yeah. him a cup of coffee mm-hmm. but yeah no i'd want to see the joker instead if you do well, something yeah. really dumb like offer him a cup of coffee and then tell him about jesus but that'd be embarrassing so like if yeah you can't, and he if might you... yell at you and it might be yeah, and right. he might pull out his gun and pop you in the head which and is what, what you learned from the joker right yeah <laughs> <laughs> then go do a dance in a bathroom. <laughs> Profound. <laughs> I saw the Joker, not because I thought it would help me, because I thought it would be cool. And it wasn't. It sucked. Don't see the Joker. That's my hot take on that. I didn't see it because of that advice. Yeah. Well, it's a good advice. So Prince Hal, do we buy what he's doing? Do we think that Shakespeare plays fair? Does, is Shakespeare actually holding him responsible for any of this debauchery? Or does Shakespeare just want to say, actually, you can go sow your wild oats, use it as a suave political maneuver? and become the coolest king that we've ever seen. I think that Shakespeare does hold him somewhat responsible. It's not easy for him to make his turn, Mm -hmm. and there's a cost. And I think Hal feels like he's been a false friend and that he's betrayed these people. And so I think he carries some guilt about it, at the very least. But he also does let him make that full turn and become... An awesome king. So I think a lot of us, myself included, though, are tempted to feel like Hal's being something of a self-righteous prig at the end. Turn away. What does he say? I never knew you, old man, or something like that. Like he is harsh with Falstaff. And it's like, here's an idea. You can be harsh with Falstaff. Falstaff's an idiot and a debauched man and des- deserving of your scorn. But don't be his friend for Years yeah, and years, I think years that, and then turn think, on a dime and say, well, now I'm wearing a robe and have a crown on my head, so get out of my sight. Yeah, I think that that's part of the, I mean, depending on how you play that, if Falstaff has a place in your heart and you have to then betray him, what do you do? What is somebody like that? How do they do that? They have to screw themselves up and be a jerk. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, in the way- right? And then they feel bad about it. They feel bad about it as they do it. Yeah, it's like those movie scenes where somebody's trying to get rid of a dog. Yeah, get away! Turn their, they turn yeah, their back exactly. On yeah. yeah, kick the dog, go away, right? Whatever, yeah. and then they turn their back and start crying, right? Yeah. yeah, it's very human. It just interests me that Shakespeare doesn't actually give us the scene where he turns his back and starts crying. He only lets us see it from the outside. Well, Shakespeare leaves a lot up to the interpretation. 
Right. And modern interpreters are always going to basically make it. And I think that this is what the Hollow Crown did. It's kind of the tragedy of Falstaff, actually. Falstaff, we really like him. And of course, we really like him. Shakespeare intended us for He's a likable. Shakespeare really likes Woody. him. Yeah, yeah, everybody loves Falstaff. But then it's there's a reading of the play where Hal actually does a great thing at the end. And maybe he's kicking the dog a little bit, but also he absolutely had to do it. And we are watching a king ascend and it's actually glorious in its way and like finally finally thor is done being fat and done drinking and done playing video games and he's telling the guardians of the galaxy to hit the bricks yeah there's that reading and then there's the reading where oh well okay maybe it had to be done but sucks for falstaff and did how there actually are different two different ways you could play this i think Mm. and i understand the answer to that is they're they're all in there but you can also really make Falstaff more the guy we love to hate or the guy we hate to love, depending on... And is your question whether or not Shakespeare Most of that's just going to be casting. Yeah, I mean, honestly, yeah. like, can the guy you cast as Falstaff make you... Is he going to make you make himself into the guy you hate to love or the guy you love to hate? Right. But the, I don't think that there's any question that Shakespeare wrote him and intended him to be the guy that you hate to love. Yeah, this, we, the Hollow Crown does a good job with that. I think they do. I think he could be funnier in The Hollow Crown, actually. Yeah, I was actually wondering, when the, uh, is it James Broadbent? Is that the actor? Jim Broadbent? Yeah, yeah. he'd be great. He would be great as Falstaff. Yeah. I mean, that one character he plays in the Harry Potter movies is kind of a Falstaffian character anyways. Mm-hmm. Well, and the... Um, Sugar Nose or whatever. Sugar Nose, yeah. But you, you could also get Hagrid to play Falstaff. You know, you can get somebody right. really lovable and yeah. just putting on... Orson Welles famously played Falstaff and... Gave a very commanding, boisterous, big Santa Claus in all his glory kind of performance. There's, there yeah. are uh, the guy that played um, Sulla. What, what, what is his name? John Reese Davies um, oh. from from Indiana Jones. Gimli. He's pretty famous for his Falstaff. I think on the stage or some. That makes sense. And, yeah, yeah you know, he'd be great. At, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or I think there's I think, a lot of potential for him to go. You feel like he could go anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But do we see a particular, I guess my only question is, do we see a particular way that Shakespeare wants us to go, or is it really just left to interpretation? And at the end of the day, are we supposed to be like, eh, Hal was a little mean, or are we supposed to be like, go Hal? That's the glorious you had to do king it. rising. Yeah, finally yeah. the king has risen. Um, or is the only answer all of the above? I, I really feel like the only answer is all of the above, because even if you look at, I mean, the whole play or set of plays is this tension of on the opposite side of, of Hal and Falstaff is Hal and Henry, mm-hmm. right? And his relationship to, to his dad and his desire actually to please his dad. You know, it's just set up to be full of all kinds of maybe unresolved tension. Our actors and our directors can try to resolve some of that tension for us, but wherever they resolve tension on one side, they're creating more tension on the other side. If you simply make Falstaff sympathetic, then... It's not such a great, glorious thing that we're supposed to be celebrating here. Right. If you make it just that, then suddenly you feel bad about Falstaff. If you make it... Like, he created a a play where you can't fully relieve tension Mm -hmm. at the end of the day. So the question is only, where are you going to leave tension? Are you going to stand in the (laughs) middle so that people feel tension on both sides? Are you going to lean hard one way or the other so that the tension rests one side or the other? But... That's why I think he just, he was just playing with the, he wanted there to be tension about it all. Right. Well, and is it funny that maybe the most moving scene to me in watching these two movies versions was the scene with, I forget what his name is, like the Lord Chancellor or someone. 
he's this guy that's been a real stick in the mud foil to Falstaff for most of the play. Yeah. And then he's when Harry becomes king, he this stick in the mud Sam the Eagle type character is afraid that because he's put Hal in jail because he's actually punished Hal yeah. when Hal was sowing his wild oats he's afraid Hal's gonna take his revenge mm-hmm. and then he has this great little speech saying you know I, I I was invested with the king's authority and I was doing what your father wanted and if you had a son wouldn't you want yeah. me to do the same mm-hmm. and then Hal actually says yes I would I understand completely he calls him father that's that's actually to me the most moving yeah. yeah, moment. I was reading over this last speech of his to Falstaff. He talks a lot about how he's changed now, and that if Falstaff changes, he'll be welcomed back and maybe even given advancement. And he gives him a pension. Yeah, and so there's tenderness even with Falst- with Henry's rebuke at the end. So I don't think that it's... Com- I think Jake's right. I think that Shakespeare's playing with attention here. Mm-hmm. And that he has some fondness and tenderness towards this old man, even though he is debauched and he knows now he can't have anything to do with him. Yeah, well, and I think the thing you guys said about the kicking the dog thing is right. He says all this stuff that seems intentionally a little bit over mean, like, you know, the grave would thrice, thrice gape for you, fatso. It's like, it's the kind of thing you say to someone, as you guys already pointed out, when like it hurts too much to just be honest and cold the way that you should be. So you 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 exaggerate, you punch Yeah, and and don't forget also that there was an audience for that scene. The The additional layer to bring to it is that not only did he have to kick the dog but he also had to let the people around him know that he was burning his bridges with the mangy mutt well and anybody who's ever had any authority invested in them in their lives knows you do have those moments where it's just like you know you watch those stupid youtube videos where the dad burns the all the cds or smashes the tv yeah and you always kind of think well okay the dad had this cathartic moment he felt really good about you know where he he didn't discipline his kids for 15 years and then he tried to pack it all into one ritual act and then probably they just you know as may or may not have happened in my family a tv was thrown out the when was literally thrown out the door and then a tv was bought within the same 24 hours within the same 24 hours maybe i'm exaggerating a little bit but that's my memory of it but i say that not to be too hard on those dads i think anyone who's been in a position like that knows sometimes in order to jumpstart your own ability to discipline to jumpstart your own authority you do just come out swinging and well you gotta there are times where you have to shake things up and you have to say hey you have to communicate the status quo is changing right and if you come home if you've been chronically weak in your discipline and allowed your kids to walk all over you. There's a sense in which you got to start taking baby steps to correct that. But there's also like, you're talking about teenagers yeah. who are just going to roll their eyes at you. Mm-hmm. You got to do something to shake them awake. Get their say, attention. Hey, 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 hey no, no, no. Yeah. yeah hard yeah, reset. A hard reset. Yeah. And, then, and then you can, you know, after you've done that hard reset, you can dial things back a little bit, but you, but, but what you can't do is give up the authority that you've just reclaimed or you make yourself twice a joke. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so there is some of that going on here. Well, that's, 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 that's what, that's what was, you're recommending that, that, or suggesting. Well, yeah, and I think yeah. you're right. I mean, but the, all, the best thing to this, do is to discipline your kid if you're a father or to, if you're a prince. The best thing to do is just to be a good prince. I don't agree with <laughs> Hal's basic philosophy of everyone will respect me more if I'm an idiot first. But... You know, the best thing to do is to establish the authority from the beginning. But mm-hmm. if you haven't, I think it's easy to despise a hard reset and it, it we shouldn't actually. Yeah. And I do think part of it does come just from his natural sympathy with mm-hmm. these characters. 
because you see it at the beginning with the position and the page that he gave to Falstaff, even though it was a little bit of a joke. He gives that page to Falstaff to help him. And yeah. Yeah, yeah. And by the end, he is like the last thing he says is like, if you change, you know, I, I might give you some advancement, but I can't have anything to do with you. I don't want to justify Hal's strategy, but I do want to say that if Hal was legit concerned about the whole court thinking that he's just a pushover, mm-hmm. that setting himself up for a hard reset, not just with people like Falstaff, but with the court yes was pretty savvy yeah one way or another maybe not maybe not the best way to set himself up for a hard reset but you have like think about solomon and think about rehoboam rehoboam is concerned about this same kind of thing when solomon dies how do i establish myself as an authority and not just the boy that everybody knew and the wise counselors are like here's what you do you ingratiate yourself to all of the officials and the people. You lighten the load a little bit. You show yourself to be gracious. You win their love first. And then when you have your opportunity you bring and you need to bring the hammer, you bring the hammer and people will respond to it. All the young stupid counselors are like, actually, what you need to do is come out swinging and say, you thought my dad was tough. You haven't seen tough. My dad whipped you with whips. I'll whip you with scorpions. Right. And so Hal's, I think, playing with that same kind of tension that I think a lot of natural successors are going to feel in any situation, whether that's like from within a company or from within a church or within a kingdom or within a, even within a family, like when the patriarch dies, right? Like, Mm -hmm. is the firstborn son, is he going to be the new patriarch of the family? Like, how's he going to establish his leadership? Well, the interesting thing, what I actually thought you were going to do is contrast that with when Solomon takes over from David. David specifically says, clean house with these couple bad dudes that I I could never, for whatever reason. Yeah, but so that's, sorry, that was in my mind to go there because they both want to do the same thing. Right. But what Rehoboam does is he punishes everybody. He he punishes the people that have been... That have been there from the beginning. And what Solomon does is he punishes all of the... What he does is he comes and he cleans house with all of the bad hangers on. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Like all the people that have slipped under the radar that everybody is probably fed up with and is maybe at this point pretty upset or varying degrees of upset with David for tolerating them. Right. Like we're talking about Shimei who however many years, 20 years, 10, 15, 20, 30 years beforehand, like his my you know, his all his bros were like, dude, we should cut this guy's head off and drag him through the streets. He's such a wicked blasphemer. And David is like, no, 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 no. We can't do that mm-hmm. because this is God's discipline of me. And so then he says he's not going to touch Shimei. So he doesn't touch Shimei, but everybody knows you've got this horrible, wicked man living in the in the kingdom, sort of under David's protection. Mm-hmm. Like these are the kinds of people that Solomon's like, I'm getting rid of all you guys. And so a bad, insecure Hal would behave like Rehoboam and what that would look like is punishing Falstaff and punishing the Lord Chancellor just to say like, you know what? Everybody who ever crossed me was stupid and I'm right and y'all are dumb and I'm, you know, there's a new king in town. But the Um, smart Hal punishes Falstaff and says, like you said, one of the best scenes of the whole play, like, no, you were faithful. Thank you for disciplining me. I hope you'll discipline my son when he... And I want to, I, I want to invest you to with more power now because, yeah, you, you, I, I see how much of a risk it was for you to discipline me. 
you were faithful to my father, the king. Mm-hmm. You loved his son. Mm-hmm. You knew that in loving me and disciplining me f- on behalf of my father, that there might come a day when I took off your head for it. And that's the kind of man that I want right by my side. Yeah. And that's just like- Really moving. So yeah, great. it's super moving. You can t- you can make yourself cry just talking about it, yeah, right? Like kind of making me tear up here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I like that they- I like in the movie version that the Lord Chancellor is played properly, I think, as very staid and boring. And like he is Falstaff's foil. He's not likable. He is mm-hmm. like he is he is the disciplinarian. And we feel it even as even as viewers of the movie, as readers of the play. It's like we're not naturally sympathetic with this guy. But Hal is sympathetic with this guy in a reversal that's allowed to actually be surprising. So Falstaff, popular character. Yeah. What do, you, what do you guys think about that Falstaff? I think we've touched on it some. Yeah. he's uh, He is very similar to a Guardians of the Galaxy character mm-hmm. in that you're meant to like him, but he is a rogue and a villain. Mm-hmm. And so you're not supposed to admire him. He's even different than other, like Dogberry from Much Ado About Nothing is different than that. He's just a fool, but at least he has the right intentions. Falstaff never has the right intentions, but there's still something, somehow Shakespeare still makes him likable. Well, he's self-aware, and self-awareness goes a long way in a character like this. All the famous bad boys of literature and film are that we like are bad boys that kind of are roguishly charming about the very fact that they're... Like Jack Sparrow. Like Jack Sparrow. Yeah, that's not a bad example of that sort of thing. You know, if somebody if somebody is just telling you that's what they are and daring you to like them, a lot of times people will actually respond to that by by taking the dare, at least in literature. I mean, I submit to you, Falstaff would be a lot less likable if you had to hang out with him and he was always screwing you over and taking advantage of you and... Lying. Lying. I actually don't like him that much as a character. I don't enjoy spending time with him. I've never... Shakespearean comedy doesn't do it for me. And I don't really feel bad about that because I feel like humor is not one of those things that's necessarily made to last. It's, It's... by its very nature, transient. And so the things that people yeah. laughed at 500 years ago aren't necessarily the same things that in, I think it's different than drama. You know, the things that make us cry are the same things that, and maybe that you could argue, you know, we could get into a big philosophical discussion about humor and say the essential elements are the same things that make us laugh. No, you're right. I mean, a lot of the puns and jokes are lost on us now. Yeah, exactly. So. And some of it's still funny. Like, I tried to. Dogberry is legitimately a funny character. Brandon likes to host these these Shakespeare nights. I was at one for the first time recently, and I heard it was the most fun one ever. Uh-huh. And but anyhow, um, it was at one point. I was just sort of occasionally interrupting the play to make jokes, and I I pointed out a pun that was lost on people, and nobody, still nobody. I don't think anybody really got it. It was yeah. the idea. One of the thing it was the play was much much ado about nothing. Our British speakers will our British speakers, yeah, I think mm-hmm. that's right. Yeah, our British speakers now they can understand <laughs> what we're yeah, saying. Yeah, you doing? <laughs> that's right. Yeah, <laughs> our our Brits will understand that for a Brit, nothing and noting sound an awful lot alike. And mm. Shakespeare makes a lot of hay between you know, much ado about nothing or much ado about noting. And so when he talks about noting people or noting if she's pretty or noting if she's ugly or noting this or noting that, he's punning, he's making all kinds of puns throughout the yeah, the right. play. 
And so I was just sort of like, I'm going to point out the obvious pun here, guys. And everybody looked at me like, what are you talking about? I was like, okay, y'all are here. Y'all think you understand this play and what's funny about it. But actually, like this this pun, this running joke that the title of this play is built on, I don't. I don't think you get the running joke. Actually, right. <laughs> the fundamental one of the fundamental jokes of this play was lost on almost everybody in the room. And I, if you were there, I'm not trying to be insulting about it. I'm sorry if you feel insulted, but I'm sorry. That's just the way it is. And there are all kinds of things like that in all of Shakespeare that are lost on all of us all of the time because yeah. we just don't get the puns, we don't get the references, we don't get the connotations. Certain certain elements of double entendre those have been lost to us. Like. Yeah, well, I w- and, and I would just add to that that I think drama, when you dilute it through having to think about it through Jake, you know, Jake can explain why something's sad and you can get sad as Jake's explaining it. You can read a line of Shakespeare, not have not know it, puzzle it out and then feel uh, the dramatic weight hit you with a joke. I mean, a joke is a delightful, instantaneous surprise. It's generally speaking, my brain was I thought the gentleman was going to walk forward. But he slipped on a banana peel. I am surprised by this. It makes me laugh. The sudden delightful surprise of the gentleman being stopped in what I thought he was going to do and doing something buffoon. That's basically at at its core what a joke is. It's a delightful, instantaneous reversal of what you were expecting. You can dissect why Shakespeare was supposed to be funny, but it it doesn't come through the dilution trying to say like by the time you figured it out and translated it for yourself and done the math in your head to make it all work out it still ain't going to be funny yeah the opening to romeo and juliet is all a pun on the word collier (laughs) (laughs) i'm laughing already collar yeah Yeah. all these puns off of that and we don't even know what it means anymore so yeah and that's not to say that shakespeare sucks or anything it's just to say that i just i'm always for us admitting when something doesn't quite hit the way that it used to or it's when langu- time yeah, has done its work is part, a large part of humor and language is culturally bound mm-hmm. and changes whether we like that or not that means a lot of the humor in shakespeare is not funny to us anymore right and just like a good actor can communicate more through shakespeare's words and make you understand them a good actor can find a lot of humor still you know you go and watch one of shakespeare's comedies performed it can still be funny but it's because a lot of the interpretive work is being done by the, the way the way that the actor performs it. If you just read these things, or if you watch a performance like this one that really didn't go the direction of trying to make it all that funny, that wanted more to tell you how tawdry it all was, it's just not gonna make you laugh that much, and that's okay. Brandon, you gotta go. I do gotta go. You gotta go to DC. All right. Secure some funding for us. Uh, I got it. I'll get it. Have fun. Talk to President Trump. Yep. Have fun. Selling our- Brandon's the whistleblower. <sighs> Bye, Brandon. Jake, is there anything else you want to say about this play, about sowing wild oats, about kingship and authority, about Jeremy Irons? That crown scene's cool. It's moving. What, his what dad, are you going to say? His it's... dad thought he wanted him to die, and then he very convincingly tells his dad, no. And we all cry. Yep. Good, good job, Shakespeare. Yay. Um... Based in very human, very real feelings, and every father feels like his son just wants him to get out of his, the way. You know, if you can write a scene where the son convincingly tells his father... No, I don't want you to get out of the way. I love you. Every father wants his son to stand on his shoulders and to build on his work, whatever that work is, and to be a better father than he was, and to be a better Christian, a better churchman, a better citizen, a better whatever than he. every good father does, at least. And every father looks at his son and is afraid. 
and some dads put too much pressure or the wrong kinds of pressure and don't understand the ways that their sons are different from them and the ways that their sons are going to have to forge their own path and build on their father's legacy in ways that look very different than their dad. And it's just all kinds of fears are bound up between fathers and sons, you know, and you see this as early as from the moment a son begins to differentiate from his father, the drama begins in the household. Dad's afraid that son's going to go off into Never Never Land and going to become something that he wasn't raised to be. Mm -hmm. Some dads squish it. Some dads give space. Some dads say, go sow your wild oats. Some dads try to control it. Some dads have faith and trust God and discipline and channel their sons as they grow through these phases. A son gets married. He establishes his household. It starts to look a little different from the house that he grew up in. Dad feels threatened. Mom feels threatened. Dad and mom feel judged. You know, all kinds of things like this happen and happen and happen. Dad begins to approach death. He begins to wonder if his his son's actually going to carry on the good things about his legacy, if his son actually cared and learned the lessons and... Or is everything going to just die with him? Yeah. Some dads freak out and go to their graves bitter and angry and sad and afraid. And some dads just simply make a decision that their sons are great and turn a blind eye to... And and some dads, they come to an understanding of their sons Mm -hmm. that allows them to accept with faith that their sons are not them. But their sons have learned the good lessons they have to offer, and they have to entrust their sons to God, and they can trust their sons to do their best to live faithful lives and to build on their legacy. And, and then take it out of the family sphere and put it in the public sphere, put it in not just the political sphere with kings, but you know we've all dealt with issues of succession and jobs. We have one manager take over, or you've gotten a promotion, or someone else that you didn't think out of. We all, we all have to deal with the new guy coming in and you the old this, guy going out. You know, it's weird. The places where we actually see these sorts of things play out are in the big uh, tech companies. Mm-hmm. They're the most analogous places uh, for this exact kind of succession that we see on a large scale where it's like Steve Jobs built Apple. And then he died. And then he was, go- yeah, and then he died. And who, who did he have? ready to take the throne and who is going to be the successor who is well, t- the entire Cook fascination is one kind tim of successor cook. johnny ive is another kind of a successor well and when any time that tim cook does a present you know every time apple does their latest presentation and we see tim cook the entire narrative in my mind and i think anyone that i talk to about it is not oh what tim what's tim cook up to it's how is tim cook succeeding in Steve's, living up to to, to to Steve Jobs, how is he carrying on? Right, and actually the narrative is he's not. But right. he's never. we're never not going to think of him. Like Tim Cook's basic function in this great story of the world is Steve Jobs' successor. That's right. that, That's the story of, that's the, the, basically if you're going to write and the novel. And what he will be judged by is, what he will be judged on is the biography is, did he live up to Jobs' legacy or not? Right. And the answer, of course he can't, because in part, he's simply trying to hold the ship together and make money. The real successor to Steve Jobs would take the company in a different direction. Right. And do something creative and great and revolutionary. We see these same kinds of things happen all over the place. Uh, So Microsoft's another example, right? Microsoft goes from Bill Gates, who's a creator and an innovator in his own right, and they go and they hire uh, Steve Ballmer. Mm-hmm. And Steve Ballmer is a guy 
you know, both Tim Cook and Steve Ballmer, they exist to perpetuate a soft core version of the legacy and make it profitable. You have a guy who's out on the frontier uh, who is designing and creating new exciting things. And then the next guy comes along and his job is to be sure the good things that were created exist, improve, and really become profitable. So the profit margins increase, but the creativity dies. The company becomes more successful for a time, but the vital life force is stripped from it. Mm -hmm. And so it ends up having a decline of its own. But the real fun, exciting place to be is whatever the name of the startup is that is coming up with actually uh, the actual new creative fun stuff Mm -hmm. out there. And that's okay. That's the way that things work. And I don't fault a business for making that kind of business decision. No, me neither. But it's just interesting. What what we have with uh, Prince Hal, I think, is probably more analogous to Solomon after David. It's like you've you've fought, you know, Henry IV has fought and had war his whole life. And he, he has been a great king, but he has also been establishing his kingdom. And then Hal says, okay, the kingdom's established. Yep. Now, what's the glorious version of the kingdom going to look like? I'm, I'm trying to think what the modern business equivalent, it might actually be, this is a weird example, but it might, have, it might be Eisner uh, taking over Disney in the late 80s, early 90s and saying, okay, Walt Disney died. <laughs> the, our company fell into chaos. You guys have survived. You've gotten the company back on its feet. We've got this animation division. We've got this money and this power. What do we do with it? And then he ushers in. And he's a, nothing if not a businessman that wanted to make money, but he managed to usher in. An actual renaissance. An of, actual renaissance of animation with Beauty and the Beast and... Um, Little Mermaid. You know... Aladdin. Aladdin, The Lion King. Those would Lion be the, King, yep. the pinnacles. And then they tried to perpetuate it in it. Yeah. Know, fell apart with the next generation. Yeah. Now they're rehashing it, right? Right. You know, it's always possible that at some point Disney's going to wise up again and they're going to throw themselves, they're going to find the creative. What would, what would be really smart is if instead of finding the crea- the creative people out there and pulling them in to rehash these properties, they found them and gave them freedom to create the next great thing again. Mm-hmm. That's what a company in that position has the power to do, right. like is provide the protection they have so much, so much, so many resources at their disposal. They can they can absorb some real creative risk, and nobody's going to declare the death of Disney if they take a real creative risk and it flops. Disney's not going anywhere. Yeah, but companies like that, once they get big, they get risk averse. Yeah, and well, so, and it's not even the the company might say we're not risk averse, but if if I feel like if I if I really want to make John Carter of Mars, and I feel like if I make John Carter of Mars you know, the company can absorb it, but I will also get fired. Right. Then I'm not going to make John right. Carter Mars. That happens to be an example I pulled that they did make and it did flop. But the people that made that needed to be able to feel like the company had their back to some extent. Yeah. And that's why these things don't happen very often is because executives are scared and executives know they will just be sent into exile. They will be punished. They will be creative people they they have a necessary they necessarily have a sort of vibe mm-hmm. that they create like a James Gunn movie is going to feel like a James Gunn movie no matter if it's in the DC universe or in the Marvel universe or somewhere else it's going to feel like James Gunn it's going to have his stamp on it a Scorsese film's going to have a Sc- the Scorsese stamp on it well you have a company like Disney they have this culture that's been created that is now on brand and now instead of the brand being we're creative, we're innovative, we take risks, we do fun things. 
We strive for, you know, real excellence. We'll shelve a film. We'll kill a project if it's not good enough. You know, we'll take a risk here. We'll take a risk there. We'll push the envelope here. We'll push it. If that's not, you know, that may be how a culture like this starts, but once they find their success formula, Mm. then it just becomes about repeating the formula, being on brand, anything that deviates from that, that's a risk that you can't really afford to take. And so then you end up getting the cheap version and cheap version after cheap version after cheap version of what sold to begin with. And sometimes the cheap version of what was really great is still good enough. And for some people it is. But if you're a truly innovative, creative person, that may be a good place to get a start or build some credibility, but that's not where you want to live. I don't know exactly how this ties in, but I just keep thinking about something I saw about the fact that Disney was developing Pocahontas and The Lion King at the same time, and everybody wanted to work on Pocahontas because it had a princess, because it was woke, which it's really not very woke by nowadays standards, but it felt pretty woke back then because it was continuing what they thought they did well. It was it was on brand, basically. And then you had this dorky, what was perceived at the time to be this dorky lion thing that the closest analogy would be Bambi in people's minds at the time, just like Kimbo the White Lion. Yeah. What what is this? <laughs> like, is this going to work? This is weird. Like, you know, it's still a Disney movie, but it really felt like the B project and it felt like the B project precisely because it was albeit a calculated risk, but a risk. And so people were like, put me on Pocahontas. You know, you can go work for the Lion with the Lion King team or Pocahontas. Well, everybody wanted to be associated with the thing that was going to be successful and the thing that was going to be on brand. And it was Pocahontas. And, you know, nowadays, look, I kind of like Pocahontas. Actually, I don't think it's terrible personally, but I don't think I'd it's... never liked it. I don't I think it's very fondly remembered. It. Yeah. I have no fond memories of it whatsoever. Yeah. And the Lion King is stone cold classic. All of which has everything to do with the crown scene in Henry the, <laughs> in Henry the, Henry the Fourth Part Two. You know, these are the. I mean, this is what's great about Shakespeare is you can read Shakespeare talking about kings and princes from 500 years ago and end up talking about Disney. Or I could have taken us in the direction of talking about sports and mm-hmm. these these uh, legacy franchises and teams. And Absolutely. They're all need to always find the successor and who's going to be the next Michael Jordan and who's going to be the next LeBron James. And is it possible to be the? And how do you, if you're tagged to fill those shoes, do you create enough space for you to just be yourself and you mm-hmm. know all that sort of thing? But well, one of the reasons we're so interested in these things, one of the things that res- reasons it resonates when uh, we read it in Shakespeare is because we actually do all find ourselves. I mean, the other direction I was thinking is what about your high school job? at mcdonald's you know didn't somebody take over at the manager and didn't you like the old manager wasn't the scuttlebutt while everybody took a smoke break about how that person was ruining this particular mcdonald's store and you know so these issues of succession yeah and did he succeed in in winning everybody to himself making everybody love him and respect him or did he fail did he succeed by cleaning house and getting rid of some problem people that the old guy tolerated or did he succeed by you know, a manager moving into McDonald's has to make all the same exact kinds of decisions who do i fire who do i keep where do i you know make my employees feel like i'm their friend i'm a good guy where do i make them feel like 
you know, I'm going to hold the line here mm-hmm. and I'm going to raise our standards. And um, uh, if you are, if you're out there listening and you suddenly became a McDonald's manager, you could do worse than read Henry the Fourth, Part Two, <laughs> and <laughs> look true. at some of the lessons. It's true. Who is the person that has been disciplining everybody and they've actually really appreciated it? And how can I get behind that person and and say, you know what, actually, I'm going to hold this person up. And who's the person who's fun and also wastes everyone's time and makes everyone's job harder? And am I going to reward that person for being fun or am I going to have the eyes to see that actually people will be really happy and it will be a very savvy move and also a very godly move for me to discipline this person and or can them all or together. can them all together and what's the difference between the toxic fall staff and the guy who's not a great worker but who really is a a, a key essential player in the the chemistry and creating a positive work environment mm-hmm and the line between the two is not always clear because there is often that guy who he's not a great worker. He does he is somewhat distracting. It's not because he's malicious, but also what he does is he makes coming to work fun for everybody and improves morale and improves it. And he he doesn't feel like it's not the guy that you're looking at and you say, Man, I gotta carry his weight. Mm-hmm. He makes everybody's weight lighter just by being a good positive influence, even though he may be a little Is, is he ever going to be the guy that the employee of the year that breaks all previous quota records, whatever? No. Never. Never. Uh, but, but if you take him out, you might see an overall drop in production and contentment and happiness among all your workers if you take him out of the situation, mm-hmm. right? And that's that's the kind of thing that like uh, that transfers everywhere, right? Like you've got on any sports team or NBA, you've got the you've got the veteran. Mm-hmm. He doesn't contribute on the floor anymore, but he understands what makes for winning a winning team and locker room chemistry. And he's a leader, and he's and he's able to mentor younger players and provide stability and even just normal life advice for the rookie that is going to translate into success for that rookie on the court. But he's also eating up a a big contract and you've got to know when it's time to let that guy go and when it's time to pay him to be in the locker room. Well, then you've got the- All that stuff factors in. You've got the Lord Chancellor type situation. You know, here's the office manager that nobody likes because he's a disciplinarian because he doesn't care whether you like him. And is this the self-righteous prig that's a tyrant that you actually should get rid of? Or is it actually really smart to have a guy around who can do that who can do that like it's actually organizationally can be very effective and nice and good and godly and everything else that is positive to have somebody that people don't like and he's he actually doesn't care like he exists to you know he exists to be the lightning rod and he's he's the hatchet man basically like if you're going to be an effective king you need somebody that people are actually more scared of than you because you need to be able to have a light touch with certain people and so to have a guy that just represents law and order. Um, yeah, but then when you have that kind of guy, how do I keep that guy happy with his job? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> and make him feel respected and loved and appreciated. Right, and let's say I have that guy and then I have the good version of Falstaff that you're talking about, the guy that does actually make everyone's job lighter simply by being there and yet his quotas aren't quite up and things like that. How do you uh, hashtag coexist? How do you get those two guys yeah. to exist with each other? The the disciplinarian guy is going to just issue, uh, you know, disciplinary form after yeah. form to 
Falstaff and say, you know, well, you've been tardy three times. Now I have to fire you. And then you're going to have to step in and say, I support your discipline, but also Falstaff's always going to be tardy, but he he has these things and actually he's not that big of a drain as opposed to this other guy who is tardy and we should just fire right you know as opposed to this other guy who's always on time but sucks the life out of everyone around him that's what it means to be an authority is being able to see to see these kinds of things to know where to draw the lines to know where it's important to draw lines to know even where it's important to hold the good version of that false staff to the three tardy policy mm-hmm. and you're fired and where it's time to break it and how to create an environment where the good version of false staff is disciplined. Right. But and and when to get false staff in be, front of everybody and say you're fired and you're fat. And you're so fat and that you are going to have to take buy three grave plots just to fit you in and yeah. And by the way that manager that nobody likes, he's my best friend now. Uh, <laughs> I call him father. <laughs> He's my daddy. <laughs> He's my daddy. Yeah. <laughs> well, what I like is what I, what I'm imagining. Who knows? We don't know. We know so little about Shakespeare, actually. But what I'm imagining is that Shakespeare had this kind of drama in his. You know, Shakespeare worked at McDonald's, basically, right? He had this rowdy little playhouse, but there were issues of authority and of hard work, and you know, and so he's able to take those things, those relatable human things, and extrapolate okay, if you're like, what's the big king version of this? How does this look if we take a classic hero, if we take a a big important person with a big important role in life and mm-hmm. we graft, graft these simple human challenges onto what he does? Where does it look like? What does this look like when life and death is at stake? And I think Shakespeare... He did it in a way that was new to plays, at least. You write a Greek tragedy, you look at a Greek tragedy, and it is often simply about the pageantry of great people doing great things. But Shakespeare finds that that human challenge that, you know, no, no Greek king ever, we just get a scene where he's awake at night and he can't sleep, and the whole scene is about yeah. when you're king, sometimes you, you still can't sleep and it sucks. No, when you're Odysseus, you can always sleep when you want to sleep and you can always kill the bad guy when you need to kill the bad guy. And and what's great about Shakespeare is that he gives you those big Homeric plots where things are happening and exciting, you know, and the bad guy is dying. It's not this emo, angsty, like the bad guy didn't die because actually in real life, bad guys never die kind of HBO crap. Mm-hmm. It's what is the human angle on these big, exciting things? How does it actually look? How does it actually feel to be part of a Greek tragedy? What's your sleeping habits like when issues of succession and kings and life and death are on the line? Well, donor shoutouts. Robert and Rhonda the Lovebirds. Robert and Rhonda the Lovebirds. The Artful Anthony Dodger. The Artful Anthony Dodger. Little Anthony Cigar Store. Little Anthony Cigar Store. 114 West Magnolia Avenue, Suite G, Auburn, Alabama, 36830 is where you go for all your cigar needs. The Immortal Chelsea E. The Immortal Chelsea E. Hey, Anthony, send us- uh, $3,000? $3,000 or alternately a box of your best and we'll, uh, 
We'll uh, smoke them behind the paywall for we'll you. We'll smoke them behind the paywall. Absolutely. We'll be happy to do that. Uh, Jimmy Beam and Little Annie Oakley. Jimmy Beam and Little Annie Oakley. Lily of the Valley. Lily of the Valley. Andrew Nestor the Lovebirds. Andrew Nestor the Lovebirds. The Keith Master. The Keith Master. David's Mighty Men Trucking. David's Mighty Men Trucking. John and Jill and Little Baby Max. John and Jill and Little Baby Max. Jay and Katie who are cold and Jay and Katie are cold and love cheese and also see us loose, including until, till, till we have faces. I think I'll make it until. Uh, Fairy Princess of Wonder and Happiness, Mother Beth. Fairy Princess of Wonder and Happiness, Mother Beth. Console Prime Adam. Console Prime Adam. Galactic Princess Emily. Galactic Princess Emily. Jeremy the Dark Hooded Lord Jeremy, of Death. Jeremy the Dark Hooded Lord of Death. Uh, Nathan, not me. Nathan, not Nathan. Maya! Maya! Ryan the Red Avenger and Judith of the Ladies Ryan of Justice. Ryan the Red Avenger and Judith Danny of the Ladies the of Justice. Danny the Dude. DJ Sammy G. DJ Sammy G. Benny and Danny Benny and Tiberius. Dan, uh, Tiberius. Eric and Catherine Eric from, and Catherine Yon, from Window Yon Window Breaks. Professor and Lady Professor X. and Lady X. Lavender's Green, Dylan, Dylan, Noah Constrictor. Noah Constrictor. Marichip. Marichip. Matt Natalie with Battery of Kung Fu Mastery. Matt and Natalie with the Battery of Kung Fu Mastery. The Fair and Fragrant Maiden the Chloe. The Fair and Fragrant Maiden Chloe. Six Pack Zach with a Mean Attack. Six Pack Zach with a Mean Attack. Anthony, who is cold and hates life, liberty, and the pursuit of cheese. Anthony is cold and hates life, liberty, and the pursuit of cheese. Cheese hater. Jiu Jitsu Jeffrey. Why do you hate cheese? I don't know. He's, just, he's just a cheese hater. I would say that you're a terrible person by definition, except for one thing. It's obvious, and you don't have to say it. Yeah. So I won't. Yeah. Anthony? We're disappointed. Jiu-Jitsu Jeffrey, the Texas Ranger. Jiu-Jitsu Jeffrey, the Texas Ranger. Rachel. 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 <laughs> Martha. <laughs> Rachel was Batman's girl, right? Yeah. 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 All right. It's what we do that defines us. Oh, brother. <laughs> Wiggity Day, produced by me, executive produced by Jake and me. Go to patreon.com forward slash the booking to support us. Hey, get us up to a thousand bucks a month. We are not that far away. We want to read Tolkien all next year. We promise we're going to love Tolkien. I am actually already reading it with my kids, finished Fellowship of the Ring. I've started on the Two Towers. This is me uh, speaking it into existence living it out by faith i'm confident you guys are going to get us up to a thousand i'm so excited to talk about these books i'm excited there's about a lot more to talk I, about I, they're not just simple children's stories yeah, we there is a lot to talk about with tolkien and it will not be a narnia type situation where we are sad about it uh certain elements actually i, I mean I, we may have some criticisms but i think overall be a lot of positive energy coming your way uh, yeah. vis-a-vis tolkien and we'd love to talk about it we have a, a lot of thoughts a lot of mental territory to explore be fun to go back to those things and wade through those peter jackson movies and jake's been reading the books to his kids if That's i'm not right, mistaken yeah. yep and in fact i just said that to them yeah you did um <laughs> <laughs> well, i'm definitely not mistaken then uh yeah $1,000 a month. That's what we need. So if you can do $10 a month, if you can do $5 a month, if you can do $25, if you can do $50, then we'll send you a book. The the books that we are going to read in time for you to read them with us. If you can do $10, you'll get a awesome donor shout out, just like Six Pack Zack with Amin and Tack and many, many others. That's the one that comes to mind though right now. The Fair and Fragrant Maiden Chloe. Rachel. 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 Rachel.
Rachel. All kinds of wonderful people. Those are just some of the recent ones. Do it. 